welcome to the Sanction Space podcast. I am Justine Walker, Global Head of Sanctions, Compliance and Risk at ACANS. This series brings you the stories behind sanctions. What are the trends? Who are the key people? And how do the threads of the past shape future thinking? Joining me today is the Honourable Sue Eckert. Sue is a senior associate with the Humanitarian Agenda at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies. Many of you will know it as CSIS. Previously, the US Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Export Administration, responsible for dual use, export control and sanctions policies. She was also a former staff member of the House of Representatives Committee on Foreign Affairs. Sue is a familiar face to many of us. She has directed many research projects and, in fact, is currently our co-chair of the International Sanctions Compliance Task Force Humanitarian Workstream. Sue, welcome to the podcast. Delighted to be with you, Justine. Thank you very much and happy 2022 to you. Thank you, Sue. So look, today we're going to continue talking about Afghanistan and very specifically the 22nd of December Security Council Resolution, Resolution 2615. And this specific resolution enables the provision of humanitarian aid into Afghanistan. Many people will be reading the news. They are seeing winter has arrived in Afghanistan. Millions are facing hunger. The situation on the ground is both critical and heartbreaking. In the build-up to this resolution, you were working extensively with UN stakeholders, international organisations and member states around reform of sanctions to promote humanitarian action. Given the urgency in Afghanistan, just talk us through why was this resolution even required? Well, thanks, Justine. And um, your lead up, I think, points to the key issue here. Aid groups are estimating that nearly 23 million Afghans out of a total population of 39 million already don't have enough to eat. Many of them are now on the verge of starvation. They lack shelter and money to heat the homes. And they're critical and heartbreaking stories of, of families forcing them to choose between food and fuel. What we are facing it is a full-fledged humanitarian disaster. And according to the UN agencies and WHO, it says it's one of the world's most rapidly growing humanitarian crises. What's particularly distressing is the estimate that at least one million children, and we're talking children, in Afghanistan are at risk of dying now that the temperatures, that winter is here, and that the mass starvation is widespread. And then this, again, is on top of the other humanitarian disasters that we're facing around the world. In December, OCHA released its Global Humanitarian Overview 2022 and estimated that 274 million people are in need or will be in need of humanitarian assistance and protection this year. That is up from 235 million just a year ago, which was already the highest figure in decades. So what we're facing here is a critical humanitarian crisis. I think that it was very clear in the weeks after the Taliban takeover in August that the multiple sanctions that are in place related to the Taliban were having a critical impact on the humanitarian situation in Afghanistan. UN sanctions under UN Security Council Resolution 1988 had been in existence, those sanctions for a decade and even prior to that, all the way back to 1998. They target a list of individuals, I think it was last, I think somewhere around 135, and five entities. 
but not the Taliban per se. But what's extremely important to understand here is that there is no humanitarian exception or exemption in the UN 1988 regime. The only other UN sanctions regime where there is a humanitarian exemption is in Somalia, and that was created in the wake of the 2010 famine in Somalia. Most member states have taken the position that without an explicit provision in the Security Council resolution that humanitarian assistance into these countries is limited and that there can't be prohibited. Humanitarian assistance is actually prohibited to those sanctioned entities. And in fact, I believe OFSI in the UK took the, in a recent publication in the fall, took the explicit position that in fact they could not provide humanitarian assistance without a UN Security Council exemption. But as other of your participants in your podcast have noted, there's also the complex interplay between U.S. sanctions, which does actually list the Taliban as a specially designated global terrorist, and the Haqqani Network as a foreign terrorist organization. So the complex interplay between UN and U.S. sanctions has created questions as to whether the government of Afghanistan is sanctioned, since the Taliban is the de facto government. So with the sanctioned situation, in addition to the frozen assets of the Afghan state that are held, about 10 billion, of which about nine are in the United States, it's actually slowed or dried up international banking transactions in and out of Afghanistan, as well as trade. So we have a situation where in-country public sector salaries have dried up, the economy has tanked, development and aid projects, no matter how essential, have been paralyzed or canceled, and food has become increasingly scarce. Schools, clinics, hospitals, etc. across the country have stopped functioning. And while the U.S. has issued a series of general licenses providing for humanitarian assistance, most other member states, as we said before, implementing 1988 sanctions have taken the positions that humanitarian assistance is not permitted. And therefore, you came to a, a crisis point where there was a recognition that in order to move forward and ensure humanitarian assistance could be provided, there was a need for a UN Security Council resolution. And that led up to the negotiations that took place in the fall to come to UN Security Council Resolution 2615. Thanks, Sue. And I mean, you've set that out really clearly around the build-up and why it was so imperative that we had this new resolution. But for many in the humanitarian community, and, and indeed us in the compliance community, it seemed to take a long time to agree the resolution. We both know, as do many others listening, that to achieve any UN resolution has so many complexities. But given everyone's commitment to humanitarian aid, just why did it take so long to approve the text? Why did we have to wait to the end of December to see this resolution come out? Well, you're absolutely right to point to uh, the unbelievable position that it took months to get a Security Council resolution to affirm what was so clearly um, needed, and that is humanitarian assistance should be going into the people of Afghanistan. It was, I think, frustrating for um, member states, for NGOs, for those who are actually trying to make a difference to the lives of the people in Afghanistan. There's a term, it's called uh, when the resolution is placed in blue, and that is sort of the 
penultimate draft that goes to member states, which is then the next step is to uh, affirm the resolution. I think it was three or four times for this resolution that it went to blue, meaning that there were member states who objected. So it was all the way up until December 22nd, until the end, it wasn't certain that all member states would support. Now, there are a number of reasons for that. One is, I think, among all member states, there is a concern about rewarding the Taliban. No one wants to be in a position where humanitarian assistance or support for Afghanistan is diverted. It benefits the Taliban. So that's an overriding political concern, I think, that all member states share. But secondly, it takes a process, and and I would say that the U.S. deserves a great deal of credit for this, uh, albeit it was much slower than hoped, but came to the recognition that something had to be done. Some member states were taking the position, well, maybe we can just issue guidance that humanitarian assistance should go in. And I think it became um, wrapped around the axle in a legal argument about, well, can you issue guidance to overcome a prohibition? Ultimately, I think the right decision was made that no, you can't. There's If there's no exception or exemption, the prohibitions are you know pretty absolute. So the U.S. got to a position where it had to go to the highest levels of the administration to affirm that a resolution should be pursued. Once that happened, the U.S. then discussed with its P3 partners, the U.K. and France, prospects of a resolution. The UK was very supportive. The French government had numerous concerns about the Taliban benefiting in some way, shape, or form. And so there was a number of weeks required for negotiations on terms of limitations on the time frame for an exception, what kind of reporting would be done, etc. So it was not until November that the P3 actually spoke to the rest of the P5, including Russia and China, and then ultimately began sharing with the other members of the Security Council. And it was very interesting because there were different perspectives within the P5 as to whether humanitarian exemptions are necessary or already implied. I do believe that in some ways, I think that some members of the council were not actually hearing each other as clearly as they could have in that China and Russia, one of the times that the silence was broken on the text, was due to the fact that the Chinese understanding was that humanitarian assistance and the need for an exemption was wrong and that there was an overinterpretation of existing sanctions. And there is some historical precedent for this. This goes back to 2010 when Somalia sanctions created the humanitarian exception. And there was discussions as to whether humanitarian action and IHL already uh, um, contained an explicit or an implicit uh, exemption. So there is some basis of this, but it took many weeks to get to the point where all member states understood that the objective was to get humanitarian assistance in there, even if there were different interpretations as to whether humanitarian exception was necessary. So 
it made for some awkward wording, perhaps, or at least wording that departed from the existing humanitarian language in Somalia. But uh, some member states wanted some additional language on reporting, which would have uh, had NGOs report on the potential diversion of funds. Um, there would be, uh, you know, extensive reporting by OCHA of how funds were being used, etc. So this was all in the mix. Um, some other member states in particular wanted to focus on responsibility for the situation and that the problems about uh, the women's treatment in Afghanistan, etc. So as you know and mentioned, it is a complex process, and it did take much longer than anyone expected. NGOs were particularly pushing this because the situation was growing more dire by the day. As the weather got worse, the situation became extremely dire. And so uh, we were left with a situation that what should have and could have hopefully have taken only a period of weeks took months. But finally, on December 22nd, there was a unanimous approval by the, the new resolution. So, Sue, it is fascinating to have all of that background. And just to set that out for listeners around the complexities and just why does it take so long? But, you know, one of the things which is essentially now permitted is the processing of payments and funds, um, other economic resources, the provisions of goods and services necessary to ensure the timely delivery of humanitarian assistance. This is obviously, it's quite complex text, but it's really important text. And just how important is this as a game changer, do you think, in relation to how people are going to be able to deliver humanitarian aid within Afghanistan? I think the specific language that you cited was included explicitly in order to address financial institutions' concerns. There was widespread recognition that in the aftermath of the Taliban takeover, financial institutions were extremely reluctant to handle any kind of transactions in and out of Afghanistan. And even after the OFAC, U.S. Um, Treasury Department, issued general licenses, there was still a reluctance by banks to do any kind of transfers other than for specific humanitarian purposes. With that recognition, a number of the member states pushed for explicit language that had not existed previously, that actually, as you said, that the processing and payment of funds, other financial assets or economic resources, and the provision of goods and service to ensure timely delivery are explicitly permitted. And I think that that is a positive development in the sense that in the past, people thought, well, you just need to authorize humanitarian assistance, right? People didn't quite understand that the flow of funds has to follow the authorization and that we need to take account and provide legal protection for financial institutions as well as NGOs. So I think that was quite an important recognition and including it in this resolution, I think, was a very important development, which hopefully in the future can be replicated. I will say that in all the times I've been dealing with Security Council resolutions, it was really the first time that member states understood exactly how important the processing of payments in support of humanitarian measures is and the need to protect that in the resolution. 
And does the text go far enough? You know, is the resolution broad enough? And I'm going to cite Abdullah Aldarari, who is the head of UNDP in Afghanistan. And he has consistently indicated humanitarian assistance alone will not save a country. You know, are we still going to be faced with limitations? I don't think the resolution went far enough from the perspective of many NGOs who are trying to address the situation on the ground. The fact that assistance is limited to basic human needs, it does not broach the issue of development. And there is not a very bright line in uh, distinction between humanitarian assistance and development activities. When you are talking about putting in sanitation systems or, you know, water or other key, they can be considered infrastructure development projects, but you can't deliver humanitarian assistance without clean water. And so I think that for the perspective of dealing with Afghanistan, this issue has been quite complicated, unnecessarily so, I think, to the point of trying to draw this bright line between the two and to limit support to humanitarian assistance alone. That is not going to be possible in the long term, because part of the problem really is the lack of liquidity in in Afghanistan. I mean, there is a shortage. There is no new U.S. dollars coming in to the system with the cessation of the central bank's import of U.S. dollars, and there's no printing of new Afghani notes. So the liquidity crisis has really put a premium and collapsed, if you will, the economy and the banking system. And unless we remedy that and provide, as the Secretary General noted back in September, that this is not just about saving lives, but saving livelihoods. Unless we get over this distinction between the two and go to the point of supporting the restoration of the Afghan economy, I fear that you know, we are putting efforts into humanitarian assistance, which are not going to be significant enough. I think most recently, uh, Martin Griffiths, who is the, the UN humanitarian coordinator, said that humanitarian agencies inside of Afghanistan can only operate if there's cash in the economy which can be used to pay officials, salaries, cost, fuel, and so forth. So, and this is his words, liquidity in its first phase is a humanitarian issue. It's not just a bigger economic issue. And the liquidity issue is going to be so critical. And, you know, and I've touched on that in previous podcasts and webinars as well. There was a point that you mentioned earlier on around diversion concerns and some of the member states not wanting a resolution to be seen rewarding the Taliban. We now have within the new resolution the expectation that the emergency relief coordinator will report on implementation and that will include obstacles to implementation, diversion concerns, risk management, due diligence processes. So Clearly, sufficient oversight is being viewed as really critical for this resolution. How is this oversight going to be actually undertaken? How important will information sharing be? What sort of role does the public private sector have in this? I think on this question, it is very critical as to how UN OCHA issue some guidance to the humanitarian sector. I should note that the provisions that are in the resolution are really focused on the emergency relief coordinator, the head of OCHA. 
to brief and provide this information. In earlier versions, it was explicit requirements on NGOs to provide such information about diversion of funds, risk management, and due diligence processes, which would have been extremely burdensome on individual NGOs, and in fact would have had the same effect of giving an exception or exemption on one hand, but then making it less useful by the complexity of implementing it. I think it was very important that the measures be moderated as they were in the final resolution. But it is important that member states are saying that that this is not, you know, a license to go in and do whatever. There are other, and these are counterterrorism or regional security, there are sanctions and their objectives are important and need to be complied with. I think how this is done, we're going to look specifically to what kind of guidance OCHA might be able to give to NGOs, but also what member states are going to do to implement this resolution. As you've noted, the U.S. already has a range of general licenses which were issued in September and then reinforced in December to allow for activities to support basic human needs to move forward. And in fact, the December general license were actually important in expanding the scope of permissible activity to go beyond to include education and and other kinds of um, activities. But that doesn't exist right now in uh, the EU, for example, or the UK. So I think the implementation and to make sure that reporting measures don't undercut the purpose, the main purpose, which is to get NGOs to provide the humanitarian assistance. I think one other point's important here, and that is humanitarian groups cannot be expected to provide assistance in these complex areas without some risk. And NGOs, banks, and everyone involved in the chain take whatever steps they can to mitigate the risks. But we have to accept that this is a situation where you cannot eliminate risks. It has to be managed. And you have to expect that some things are going to happen, that some diversion is going to go awry. This has been explicitly recognized in the United States since 2014 when OFAC said that diversion or funds which go awry are not the basis for enforcement actions. So I think what we have to do is become a little bit more realistic about the complexity of the environment humanitarians are struggling to deliver aid and be accepting that this is the only zero risk option is not to provide the assistance. And millions of people, and we're talking millions, are on the verge of famine and dying as a result of lack of assistance. So again, I think we have to keep the longer term objective in mind, which is to get the vital humanitarian assistance to the people who are in need. Sue, as we start to draw this to conclusion, we've covered a lot of ground, but I just want to ask you around next steps, because clearly this is the start of a journey and much more will need to be done to support the people of Afghanistan, you know, particularly around payment channels. How do we ensure sustainable, transparent and safe payment channels? And really, from your perspective, what are the most important next steps, whether that be for governments, humanitarian actors, and indeed the compliance community? 
Well, thanks, Justine. As we've noted with regard to both the OFAC licenses and now UN Security Council Resolution 2615. Both of these measures are necessary but not sufficient to get the funds into Afghanistan. So follow-up and implementation of the resolution is going to be very important. I think one of the things we need to note is that there is broad fear and apprehension with regard to payments in Afghanistan. And we should note that unless it's going to the Taliban, it's permissible, even under U.S. sanctions. What the resolution has tried to do is to clarify the range of activities in which it's encouraged and permissible for these kind of payments in Afghanistan. The resolution was explicit to try to encourage financial institutions to handle these payments. So one of the things I think we need to do is to more widely explain what can go into Afghanistan. Secondly, I think member states need to now implement these measures. And in places like the UK and uh, the EU, etc., which has not explicitly authorized humanitarian assistance under 1988 uh, prohibitions, it's important that the action take place quickly and that undue reporting requirements not undercut the purpose of the humanitarian exception in the resolution OCHA is another key part of this, which will be dealing with NGOs in terms of how the reporting might take place. And I think OCHA's guidance will be important and agencies working together to understand the situation on the ground. What is also important on recognition is that we have a situation, an unstable, difficult, complex environment, and there is nothing that is is assured in which we can totally eliminate risk. So we need to make sure to understand and build in some flexibility that in such an environment, some things may go awry, but as OFAC has noted in the past, there's the opportunity, those kind of situations are not the basis for enforcement actions. And finally, I think what we need to do is to continue to emphasize the importance of the safe payment channels. In this regard, there are a number of efforts underway. The World Bank and the UN are looking at an exchange facility, which would allow for the freeing up of Afghani notes within the country and payment of uh, things like food and medicine uh, in dollars outside of Afghanistan. There are also interesting NGO solutions, looking at technological ways of creating closed-loop voucher systems. Also, there are greater use of Hawala now in the situation in Afghanistan over the last several months. I think that we need to have the creativity of the international system to bring new ideas to the table to try to encourage safe payments into Afghanistan. And we look forward to working with ACAMs, as they've done such important work on this topic in the past. Sue, thank you so much. We will continue working on the payment channel aspect. And as you say, the UN resolution takes us a very good step forwards. It's not the end of the journey. There will be more hurdles to overcome, but at least we have progressed. I really do hope listeners have enjoyed some of today's insights. And of course, as a reminder, next month's Global Sanctions Summit will actually expand on many of these themes around payment channels, risk managing humanitarian payments, Afghanistan, plus so many wider aspects. 
thank you for listening and please do sign up to hear the stories behind sanctions. Sue, again, thank you. Your input is so very much appreciated. Thank you for all that ACAMS does to call attention to these issues. Thanks.